Hi, my name is Danielle and you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. On this podcast, we discuss subjects that might be creepy to some and sometimes even frightening. Some of our episodes will deal with serious subject matter, while others will be more lighthearted. Please keep in mind that I am not an expert on any of the topics I cover, just an interested party, and as always, listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, and welcome back. You're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada, and I'm your host, Danielle. Tonight I'll be flying solo. It's been a really busy week, and the weather's been really nice, so because of this, I was a bit behind getting tonight's episode ready. Since I was running a little late with it, it was easier to record by myself when I had a bit of spare time, instead of trying to organize something with a co-host. I hope it still makes for a listenable episode, despite you having to listen to me talking by myself. We've now finished our Cross Canada tour, and it's something I might redo again in the future. I think it really helped me find cases that I may not have otherwise covered. I hope you learned about cases you hadn't heard from before as well. I finished the tour last week with the case of Kimberly Lockyer and Dale Worthman. This case took place in Newfoundland. That episode will be tying into this one. If you haven't listened to the last episode yet, you're still going to be able to follow this one. They're more or less standalone, though there is some tie-in information. It shouldn't stop you from being able to follow along. During that last episode, I did mention that the name Shannon Murin came up during the investigation into Kimberly and Dale's murder, and that he'd been accused and also acquitted of another murder that took place across the country the year following the Newfoundland case. The case that he was acquitted on is the case that we'll be covering today. Today we're talking about the murder of Mindy Tran. On August 17, 1994, eight-year-old Mindy was riding her bike around the Rutland neighborhood of Kelowna, BC during the early evening. She was last seen at about 6.45 while heading down the road to go visit her friend Charmaine. Her bike would later be found on the front lawn of the duplex where her friend lived, but not in front of her friend's unit. Her bike was found, but there was no sign of Mindy. According to a 2019 Global News article, a large search took place to try and locate the little girl. Volunteers and police combed the area looking for her. About two weeks later, the search was called off with no trace of Mindy found other than the bike. A local man who'd helped with many search parties in the past trying to locate missing children didn't give up the search. He kept looking. Then a friend sent him a divining rod that he used to help guide his search. With the help of this divining rod, he located Mindy's remains on October 11th, according to the Kelowna Capital News. Now, I'm not someone who puts much credence into psychics or divining rods, and according to what I've read, many people actually seem to think it's quite suspicious that this man found Mindy in this manner. Beliefs about these types of things aside, he had been looking for her for weeks and was an experienced searcher, so I don't think it was necessarily suspicious that he found her. I think if he'd found her within a day or two, it would have raised an eyebrow, but if he was involved, he stretched it out for quite a while, and it doesn't look like the police really believed that he had anything to do with it. 
Mindy was found in the Mission Creek Regional Park, according to a 2019 Global News article. Sometimes sources say that she was buried in a shallow grave, but sometimes they say she was more, um, she was more like covered with twigs and leaves rather than buried. Evidence showed that she'd been strangled, and they also believe she'd been sexually assaulted. After she's found, the police zero in on a suspect. The suspect is a man who was known to the police and rented a room from the couple who owned the house where Mindy's bike was found. His name was Shannon Murin. He was originally from Newfoundland, but had drifted across the country to British Columbia. And they actually refer to him uh, in a CBC article as a drifter. When questioned by the police, Shannon Murin offered that on the evening Mindy went missing, he'd been drinking. He'd then gone home and fallen asleep for a while. When he woke up, he headed over to a friend's place. His friends offer him an alibi for the time Mindy Tran went missing. They say Murin was with them by 7 p.m., according to the SeanBlore.com website. This would not have left enough time for him to kill Mindy, who was spotted at 6.45. As we keep going through the case, you may or may not believe Murin is guilty of the crime, but I can assure you the police certainly did believe in his guilt, and they went above and beyond to try and prove it. And I don't mean that in a good way. According to the Kelowna Capital News, Sergeant Tidsbury had been put in charge of the investigation into Mindy's death. At one point, he started talking with some of Shannon Murin's friends and convinced them that Murin was guilty of killing Mindy, and the friends in turn admitted to lying about his alibi. Sergeant Tidsbury enlisted them to help get a confession out of Murin. These friends went to Murin's place to get a confession, and I know you can't see it, but air quotes around the get a confession part. Murin pulled a gun on them, but the gun had no bullets, and they knew this since he'd actually been trying to sell the gun to one of them. So they overpowered him and threw him down the stairs. They then brought him over to the park where Mindy had been found and threw him six feet over a fence and left him there. Sergeant Tidsbury, who'd been monitoring the situation, took his time to get help for Murin. Murin ended up in the hospital for almost two weeks, and part of that time he was actually in a coma. When he was released, he was charged with having pulled a weapon on his friends and was put in jail. He spent time in jail for this crime and would eventually be charged with the murder of Mindy Tran. His trial lasted seven months. It came out during the trial that many witnesses had actually changed their testimony to fit the police's timeline. A lot of interesting things came out during the trial and um, I think it shows to what point the police wanted him to be found guilty of this crime, but I don't think it reflects good police work. Also, the doctor who conducted the autopsy on Mindy admitted to having washed her clothes, and this, as we know, could have removed valuable evidence. According to her testimony, this was done at the urging of the police so they could positively ID the remains. This information was according to a 1999 CBC article. During the trial, a jailhouse snitch testified that Murin had confessed to him in prison. But according to reports, his testimony at the trial was comical and really not believable. But most importantly, 
The confession that was beaten out of Murin by his so-called friends was inadmissible, according to Global News. I don't really know what the technical term for it being thrown out would be, but you can't beat information out of people and expect that to be allowed in a trial, and it shouldn't be allowed in a trial. It seems that a lot was going wrong for the prosecution, but it also seems like the case itself was not handled very well. The most important piece of evidence that they brought forward, in my opinion, is that mitochondrial DNA matching murins was found on the scene. Now, I don't know much about mitochondrial DNA, but apparently it's quite a bit different than nuclear DNA, which is the one that we normally talk about. And I think we all know that that nuclear DNA, that type of DNA, is usually very strong. Um, So is usually very strong evidence. So if it's found on the scene, it's pretty much it's pretty much proving that the person was there but mitochondrial dna is different and so if you have like a hair that has no root you may not be able to get actual nuclear dna but you can get mitochondrial dna so i think it just contains less information but the chances of dna of two people matching is a lot stronger so it's harder to say for certain that it belonged to the one person The chances of a match are 1 in 114 to 1 in 468, according to the new scientist. So the odds are a lot greater that there are people matching your mitochondrial DNA. But I also find that this is a hard coincidence to shake off. After 80 witnesses testified over the period of 7 months, the jury withdrew to deliberate, and they deliberated for almost a week. Shannon Murin was ultimately found not guilty. When he became a free man, Murin decided to head back to Newfoundland, but he wouldn't be there alone for long. A few days later, he was joined by Kathy McDonald. Now you're probably wondering who Kathy is since I haven't mentioned her yet. She was a juror on Murin's trial. Now at first when she joined him there, she kept saying that she and Murin were working on a book, according to SeanBlore.com. But they then quickly admitted to being a couple. Kathy McDonald was put under investigation for obstruction of justice, but according to what I could find and what's been written about it, she had never spoken to Murin before or during the trial. But once the trial was over, she'd found out he was going to Newfoundland and then gotten in touch with him. It does seem that they did discuss a book deal, and originally that's why she flew down to see him, and they, uh, they then became a couple. Two pieces of information came out after the trial that did cast doubt on Murin's guilt, according to SeanBlore.com. A witness told police that she'd passed a bike in the area where Mindy had gone missing, but that it was actually lying in the middle of the road, not on the front lawn of a property. It seems that the bike was only placed there later. The second piece of information is that there was a man who was in jail that confessed to kidnapping and killing Mindy in an abandoned house. The house was never searched and had since been destroyed. This information was never passed along to the defense. Murin's lawyers would demand a public inquiry. There was an investigation into Sergeant Tidbury's actions, but the investigation actually cleared him of any wrongdoing. However, in 2009, Murin settled an out-of-court lawsuit saying that the evidence against him was manufactured. Murin kept popping up in the news, 
In 2006, Joey Oliver pointed a finger at him for being the person who pulled the trigger in the Kimberly Lockyer and Dale Worthman killings. If you're interested in that case, please listen to my previous episode. It is the case that we cover, so it does contain more information on this. Also, later on, according to CBC News, there are drug charges brought against Murin. It's unclear if he and McDonald are still together to this day, but up until 2009, she was still speaking to the media in his defense. This case reminded me a lot of Stephen Avery's in Making a Murderer. If you haven't seen it, there's evidence pointing towards him being a suspect in the case, but it looks like the case was very much mishandled by the police. And that kind of reminds me of this one. There is evidence pointing towards Murin, but it's hard to tell what was real and and what was manufactured or coerced after a certain point. In all the chaos of this case, we can't forget about Mindy or her family. A little girl lost her life. A family lost their daughter. Her case still remains open. I don't believe it's being actively investigated at the moment, as the police believe strongly that they know who did it and that he got away with it. But in all of this, we need to remember Mindy for the bright and loving eight-year-old that she was. If you're looking for slightly more in-depth coverage of this case, I'd recommend you listen to Dart Poutine. Uh, They did cover... They did cover this case. I think it's in episode 11. They did do a great job with it. Um, I generally try to keep my episodes between 15 minutes and 45 minutes, um, and theirs are usually slightly longer, so they do go more in depth on the details if that's something that you're interested in listening to. There was a lot of information available that I didn't really include in this episode about what had happened to Mindy. There was a lot of people saying that they'd seen a van in the area, um, but also a lot of people saying that they saw someone carrying a large and heavy suitcase in the area. And in the end, that's what the police believed happened, that uh, little Mindy was killed and then placed in the suitcase and transported to where her body was found. That was a tough one to cover, and I hope listening to me go over it on my own wasn't too bad. Hopefully, when I'm back next week, I'll be back with one of my co-hosts, so it'll make um, for a more interesting listen. As always, we're going to finish up tonight with a moment of kindness. A listener who goes by the initials KM wrote in to share their moment. Um, I'm going to paraphrase it here. He or she says, There's an elderly woman in the neighborhood that sat on her front deck in the evenings whenever it was nice out. KM would see her there, sometimes wave, but that was pretty much the extent of it. But with COVID-19, since everyone was at home more and spending more time in their neighborhood, a lot of people started stopping in front of her house and having a chat with her during their evening walks. KM says that they'd never spoken to this lady before, but has since forged a friendship with her and says that they look forward to their evening interactions, as do many people in the neighborhood. I think that since we've been staying in place for the past several months, we've actually been able to get closer to people in our neighborhood and people surrounding us. A lot of us are so busy all the time that we sometimes forget to take a moment to connect with people. 
Thanks for sharing that moment of kindness, and I hope everyone keeps connected despite our growing allowances with leaving the neighborhoods and socializing with others. Thank you to everyone that's been listening. If you like the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to those who've already done so. I do actually enjoy reading the reviews and I did get a new one today which really made me happy so thank you to whoever wrote that. I really did appreciate it. I'd also love to hear from you. You can reach out to me through Crime and Mystery Canada on Instagram or you can write me at crimeandmysterycanada at gmail.com. So feel free to share your moments of kindness. You can also share your suggestions for cases that you'd like to see covered on the podcast. As I've mentioned before, I'm also going to start covering mysteries as well. Um, I do have a few in mind, but I think a lot of those mysteries are often very regional, so you don't often, you don't necessarily hear about them unless you live in the area or know people from there. So I really enjoyed if people could reach out and um, talk to me about their local mysteries and what's going on in their area, and then in turn we can share that on the podcast. And I think even if it's something that doesn't have a ton of information on it, we could maybe combine a few in an episode. So if you've got anything in mind, please just shoot me an email or reach out to me on Instagram. You can also join our private Facebook group and we can chat a little bit further about the episodes. Thanks again everyone for listening. Stay safe out there and have a good night.